there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. Back in 1958, my daughter Valerie, who was three years old at that time, and I were living in a very strange place. We lived in a little clearing in the eastern jungle of Ecuador. It's really the beginnings of the Amazon rainforest. It had taken us three days by trail and canoe to get to that clearing. And we were given on the first night that we arrived everything that the people who lived in that clearing, who happened to be Indians, had to offer. They gave us wood for our fire. They built the fire. They gave us water. They gave us fish. They gave us a house to live in. They called it a house. It was six poles with a thatched roof. Nothing else. No furniture, no walls, no floors. But it was the same kind of house that they lived in, and of course we accepted it gratefully. I had a hammock, which I strung up between two of the six poles, and they brought some bamboo poles, which they split very quickly with their machetes and spread them on the ground for my daughter Valerie to sleep on. And we lived in that house with no walls for about a year. You can imagine that for a person of a melancholic and very private temperament, this was in itself a trial because I like privacy. I even like solitude. I like to be able to go into a room and close the door and not have any interruptions at all. And it was a year when there was no such thing as privacy, when we were under the most exquisite scrutiny every hour of every day and most of the night. We were capable, of course, of observing everything that went on in the houses next door and around the clearing. And we found ourselves to be non-stop entertainment. I had never thought of myself as a comedian, but I found out that to the Indians I was. I was a freak to begin with in every imaginable way at least a foot taller than the average woman, about six inches taller than any of the men. I had what they considered a pathetic skin color. They said that my hair looked like palm fiber and my eyes looked like jaguars. They had never met anybody that didn't speak their language. and. You know, if you've never heard a foreign language, and you've never heard of a foreign language, you would assume that your mother tongue is a native ability with which all human beings are born. And discovering this freakish human being in their midst who did not speak this language baffled them. They wondered if I was retarded. They assumed that I must be either stone deaf or retarded. And all I ever did was sit around with a little notebook and a pen and try to write down things that they said. You can imagine how much you would get down 
Right now, for example, those of you that have a pencil and paper, if I were to say to you, how much would you get down on the first run through? Well, of course, I could say it again. How much would you get down on the second time? But they never repeated it for me twice the same way. Never. If I said abadame, which was one of the first phrases I learned, what did you say? They might give me a paragraph or two of explanation of that one phrase without repeating the phrase that I was desperately trying to get down. It was, to say the least, an interesting year. There wasn't much boredom. It was a rigorous year. It was a trying year in many ways. But by the end of that year, I was pretty well able to make myself understood and understand what they said to me. As you know, if you've studied or tried to speak a foreign language, it's one thing to understand what people say to you. It's quite a different thing to understand what they say to each other in your presence. And so that's all I can claim. I was able to understand what they said to me carefully and slowly and sometimes by that time repeating. But the second year, I lived in a house with walls, and that made a tremendous difference. The Alka Indians didn't know how to build houses with walls, and so because I was by that time teaching my daughter her kindergarten, or her first grade, actually, I have to explain that we were there when she was three years old for a year, then we went back to the States for a year, then we went back in for the second year. So by the second year that we were there, she was ready to start school, and so I started teaching her first grade by correspondence, and it really became a physical impossibility, because in a house with no walls, it means you have no furniture. If you have no furniture, you have no place to put your books, and you have no desk to sit at. And we tried it that way, but when the Indian children would come and hang over her shoulder and say, can I borrow those crayons, and what's that, and what's that picture mean, and why are you doing that, and can I try it, it became very distracting, and so we needed a little bit of privacy. And so we had a house with walls, and I had learned by that time to speak enough of the language so that I was able to ask questions. And one day, one, one afternoon, I was sitting there in my house with a man by the name of Dikita. Dikita was the oldest man in the tribe, probably 42 or 43 years old. All of the other men had been killed or died more or less violent deaths. Nobody seemed to ever die what we would call a natural death. People were struck by lightning or swallowed by snakes or killed by falling trees or most of them killed by spears. And this man, as I say, was the oldest man in the tribe, and so he was the one that I was asking to give me a tape describing an event that had happened on January the 8th, 1956. And so Gikita was sitting there on the floor of my new house with, with floors. I was sitting in a hammock, and we did have a few pieces of furniture around, and I had a little tiny tape recorder. This was back in the 50s, as I said, when tape recorders were just in their infancy, and I had a very crude little model compared to the ones that you can get now. It ran on four big flashlight batteries and was anything but high fidelity. But he was sitting there holding the microphone and saying things like, And what he was describing was how he and four other Alka Indians had speared to death my husband, Jim, and four American missionaries. 
in January of 1956. And Gikita told me how they had thought that these missionaries were cannibals and they had come in to eat them. Why would I be in such a strange place? Well, that's much too long a story for me to tell you tonight. But after I had, after my husband had died, I had prayed that God would take me to the Alcas if that was his will. I couldn't imagine that he would answer a prayer like that. Have you ever prayed a prayer that you did not really expect God to answer? Well, I dare say that anybody in this room who has ever prayed what we, we would call either the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer, you have prayed a prayer that you did not really expect God to answer. You said, Thy will be done. And when God starts doing it, then you get surprised, don't you? You say, Lord, what are you doing to me? And he says, Well, didn't you ask me? Didn't you say, Thy will be done? And that's one of those prayers that you pray sometimes with little realization of what it's likely to mean. And so I had prayed recklessly and yet thoughtfully. I, I meant what I said, but I couldn't imagine any way in which God was going to answer this. I had said, Lord, if you want me to go to the Alcas, you'll have to send me. I'm available. And so God had taken me up on that prayer and had gotten me there. But before I go on, with some of the lessons that God has taught me in my missionary experience and since then, I want to read the psalm from which the words of the title of my talk come. It's Psalm 91, and the translation that I'm reading from tonight is the New English Bible. You that live in the shelter of the Most High and lodge under the shadow of the Almighty, who say, The Lord is my safe retreat, my God, the fastness in which I trust. He himself will snatch you away from fowler's snare or raging tempest. He will cover you with his pinions, and you shall find safety beneath his wings. You shall not fear the hunter's trap by night, or the arrow that flies by day, the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or the plague raging at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand close at hand, but you it shall not touch. His truth will be your shield and your rampart. With your own eyes you shall see all this. You shall watch the punishment of the wicked. For you, the Lord is a safe retreat. You have made the Most High your refuge. No disaster shall befall you. No calamity shall come upon your home. For he has charged his angels to guard you wherever you go, to lift you on their hands for fear you should strike your foot against a stone. You shall step on asp and cobra. You shall tread safely on snake and serpent. And then the speaker changes here. It seems to be God who answers the psalmist. Because his love is set on me, I will deliver him. I will lift him beyond danger, for he knows me by my name. When he calls upon me, I will answer. I will be with him in time of trouble. I will rescue him and bring him to honor. 
I will satisfy him with long life to enjoy the fullness of my salvation. It was in October of 1955 that my husband Jim and I learned the whereabouts of these Indians called the Alcas. We knew that they existed. We had a general idea where they were in the jungle, but we didn't know exactly where they were. And Nate Saint, the pilot who had served our station with his little small Cessna airplane, came in one day to tell us that he had discovered some inhabited Alca houses. And it was then that Nate and Jim and a man from Wisconsin by the name of Ed McCulley began dropping gifts to those Indians by way of preparation for the time when they trusted that God would take them in to take the gospel to these people. And it was over a period of three months that they tried to break down the hostility. They saw what seemed to be unequivocal signs of friendship on the part of the Indians. They had not only received their gifts, which had been dropped to them, sometimes free fall and sometimes by parachutes, but they had returned gifts to us through a remarkable invention of Nate's, whereby he could drop a bucket from the airplane and lift up whatever they put in it, and that's exactly what they did. They put gifts in there. We got combs from them. We got a feather fan. We got a live parrot, complete with a half-eaten banana in a little basket. And we got a cooked monkey leg. And so we believed that they were indeed receiving our overtures of friendship. And that the time was coming when God would lead the men to go into their territory and try to speak to them face to face. And so it was in January of 1956 that five men went together. The other two, besides Nate the pilot, Jim my husband, and Ed, were Pete Fleming from Seattle, Washington, a student who had a master's degree in English from the university, and a cowboy from Montana by the name of Roger Udarian, who had been a paratrooper in World War II. And the five men went in, and after what looked like a very friendly contact on a certain Friday afternoon, they were all speared to death on the following Sunday. I want you to think of the psalm that I've read in terms of just that one event. You that live in the, shadow, in the shelter of the Most High and lodge under the shadow of the Almighty, who say, The Lord is my safe retreat, my God, the fastness in which I trust. He will cover you with his pinions, and you shall find safety. A thousand shall fall at your side, but you it shall not touch. Can you imagine what words like that meant to us five widows? I remember when the word came that my husband was missing. I was standing by my shortwave radio, and immediately the Lord reminded me of words in Isaiah 43. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee, for I am the Lord thy God. I didn't know that Jim was dead at that point. He was, but it took us five days to verify it. I only knew that God had promised me one thing 
and that was that he would be with me. In the 23rd Psalm, we all know those familiar words, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Does it say because there is none? No, it says, for thou art with me. And that's the assurance that I find in this psalm. Now we have to face the fact that the psalmist speaks very specifically of certain kinds of danger. Snares, tempests, traps, arrows, pestilence, plague, war, disaster, calamity, stones, and snakes. That pretty well covers the waterfront, doesn't it? Anybody here got any troubles that that doesn't cover? Disasters and calamities, I think, cover just about everything we could think of. And it looks as though that psalm promises physical protection, doesn't it? But here were five men who had gone in obedience to God. They had gone because they believed that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for every people and tribe and tongue and nation. And in this country, although there are thousands of people that don't know the gospel, who don't know Jesus Christ as their own Savior, yet there is the opportunity if they want to. They can switch on the television, they can go to a church, they can go to a bookstore, they can do something if they want to, but there are many places in the earth where they couldn't if they wanted to. And so missionaries go out to give people the opportunity to hear. And this is what the men had done. They knew that the Alcas had never had the opportunity. And so they had gone quite simply in obedience to God, not for an adventure, not for any kind of heroism. They couldn't have imagined that they would ever be well-known or noted in any way at all. They went in obedience to God. And they sang on the eve of their departure, We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. And God allowed them to be speared to death. And so I'd like to ask you tonight, my dear sisters, what does it mean to live in the shelter of the Most High, to dwell under the shadow of the Almighty? Does it mean that the Christian is exempt from suffering? Does it mean that we have a guarantee of physical protection or that we are exempt from the ordinary woes of the human race? Well, if I believed that, I'd probably be in some kind of a padded cell by now. Because if my faith had rested on some superficial notion that Christians have 75% fewer cavities, is my safe retreat. He shall cover you with his pinions. You shall not fear the hunter's trap. His truth will be your shield and your rampart.
And then the Lord answers the psalmist, because his love is set on me, he knows me by name. When he calls upon me, I will answer him. I will be with him in time of trouble. We know from the whole burden of both Old and New Testaments, and the New Testament interprets the Old in ways that the writers of the Old Testament could not have understood, we know that the safety, the protection that God promises to those who love him is of a wholly different nature than the merely physical. Don't misunderstand me. Of course I believe God can protect us from anything, any kind of physical danger. Snares and tempests and snakes and everything else. And God did protect Valerie and me, incidentally, from snake bites. We were living all the time with the threat of poisonous snakes. And I, we saw many people die. They were not exempt. But God did protect us from those snakes. And you can imagine, you mothers can imagine, how many times I prayed as I would see Valerie go off on the jungle trails as a little toddler with the Indians. I knew that there was no way that I could protect her even if I were with her. There was no way that the Indians could protect her. And so living in that situation, I simply had to trust God to do that. And he did it. I know that God can. But I will not stand here tonight and tell you that God is going to protect you from physical troubles. I'm not going to tell you that God is going to pay all your debts, heal all your diseases, sort out all your marital difficulties, and make that poor baby stop crying right this very second. God can do any of those things, but God has other things in mind than what we have. And his protection is, on, is a guarantee on a different level altogether. In the article in today's paper about me, an anthropologist is quoted as saying that to presume that life will be better if one is a Christian is a piece of arrogance, I think, is something I may be not quoting exactly. But the first phrase was to presume that, if life, that life will be better if one is a Christian. As though what missionaries go out to tell the Indians is, look, your life is going to be better in, I don't know what terms, economic, social, medical, educational, or even spiritual terms, if one is a Christian. I remember sitting in a meeting at a certain Ivy League University in the East, listening to a man lecture on the subject of a, a new search for mission. And it was quite obvious that he didn't know very much about mission. He, missions. He was still searching to figure out what they were all about, I guess. And in the question and answer period afterwards, a lady got up just within arm's length of me and she said, you know, I've never had any use for missionaries. Don't know that I've ever been anywhere near one. And she said, I never could see this business of going out all over the world and telling everybody that they're all wrong. Well, then she proceeded to tell us that she had had her estimate slightly revised by the fact that she and her husband had taken a round-the-world tour and that they got into what they thought were very remote places in Africa, and they actually found missionaries there. And, you know, she said some of those missionaries were really doing some very good things. 
they had schools, some of them had hospitals. We went, we visited a leper colony in India, and there were actually they were Christian missionaries that ran those. And so, she said, I, I don't think we should just condemn them all together. And there was a certain amount of consent, which was evident in the audience. Then they, they, they may be stupid, but they are in some cases harmless and even perhaps helpful. But it was very obvious to me that. The general consensus was one of ignorance, and almost everything that I ever read in the secular press would indicate the same thing. Recently, there was a cover story in Time magazine about the new missionary. Well, it was a very good article, and I felt, on the whole, very favorable, and I said amen to most of it, except that word new. There was nothing really new about what these missionaries were doing. The 19th century missionaries did not all go to Hawaii and try to put moo-moos on people. People have gone that whose vision of missionaries is limited to having seen the movie Hawaii might think that that was the case. But I think, in general, missionaries have been those who have felt that their job was to present the gospel, to give people the opportunity to know that there is some good news. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. Your sins are forgiven. That's basically the message, isn't it? And what God wants for you is perfect joy, perfect fulfillment, and ultimate bliss. And people can reject that if they want to. There's no way in the world that a missionary is going to ever convert anybody. I've had people ask me, how many people did you convert? Well, of course, the answer is zero. No way that a missionary would ever convert anybody. It's the Holy Spirit that does the converting. The missionary is simply the instrument who is there to present the message. We are witnesses, and that's all I'm doing tonight. I'm just one more among the millions of witnesses down through the ages that simply say, this is who God is, and this is what God has done for me. And I'm grateful that God gave me the privilege of being a missionary, but my message could never be temporal blessings, physical protection, exemption from calamity and disaster. My husband Jim was killed by the Indians. My second husband, Ad, died of cancer. But I'm here to tell you tonight with joy that I am learning, I, I don't say I have learned, but it's a lesson that God patiently and graciously teaches me over and over and over again, down through the years. I'm learning to dwell in that refuge, to live under the shadow of the Almighty. I can say with the Apostle Paul, not I know why God has done what he's done. Not I know exactly what it is that God is doing. But I can say as Paul said, I know whom I have believed. And I am absolutely sure that he is able to keep what I have committed to him. I gave him my life when I was I suppose four or five years old, I really don't remember. 
But I do remember very vividly when I was 10 years old, sitting in a meeting and thinking to myself, I'm not so sure that I'm really a Christian. I don't really remember a date when I said, Jesus, please come into my heart, save me and be my savior. And so I wanted to make sure of that. And so I stood right up in that meeting and said right out loud, God, I want to accept Jesus Christ as my savior. And I wrote that down in my Bible. And so I've never had any doubt from that time on. But probably when I was 12 or 14, I told the Lord that I was willing to be a missionary if that's what he wanted me to be. And it was when I was a junior in college that he made it very clear that that was what he wanted me to do. But when I put my life on the line and say, Lord, here is my body as a living sacrifice, do anything you want with it. There's no way for me to know what God is going to do. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.